2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today. It's great to be back in here with you guys. I feel like we just came home, don't you? Like, man, it's, uh, it's awesome to be sitting here, hearing your voices singing out loud. I don't know, there's just something sweet about being here. Although I do have to say, our home is kind of chilly, isn't it? It's kind of cold in here. Um, uh, we were kind of talking about how one of the problems we had when we were meeting at the mall was that the air conditioning units went out over there. And uh, then we moved here, and like this past Thursday or Friday, one of our air conditioning units went out here, and so we cranked up the other air conditioning unit that, co- that cools this room, and it got it really cold, and uh, we'll hope that it stays cool through the rest of these services because we got a bunch more people to pack in here for the rest of the day. So hang tight, and uh, if you need to, um, you can borrow my, my suit coat. Um, that was a terrible joke, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but it really is great to be back in here with you guys today, and uh, I'm thankful. In 1972, or excuse me, in 1792, a British man named William Carey wrote a famous treatise about global missions. Listen to what the name of this treatise was. It was called this, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Uh, My son was sitting in the front. What was your question? What's a heathen? A heathen is anybody who doesn't know the Lord, all right? And so a very polite uh, title for for William Carey's paper in 1792, but that paper ended up changing the way that Christians engaged in global missions. Um, At that point in history, many Christians believed that only the first century apostles were responsible for taking the gospel uh, cross-culturally. Um, In other words, they kind of thought that Christians should just kind of do missions among their own people in their own culture where they were. That was the normal way of thinking. But William Carey wrote this paper and said, no, the Great Commission applies to everyone. All believers should be out making disciples of all nations. And um, William Carey argued that. And and then later that year, he, he wanted to lead by example. So he ended up forming what became known as the um, Baptist Missionary Society, and that was an organization that basically brought churches together to pool their resources to send regular Christians like us out to the mission field. Uh, After that mission society was founded, again, he led by example and and really took off, and he, he actually left to go to China to serve as a missionary. So the Baptist Missionary Society was the first organization to operate this way. Um, they, now, now, as we look around the world, many missions organizations operate this way, um, but that was novel then. That's why many people call William Carey the, the father of modern missions. But one of the pastors who joined William Carey in his efforts was a man named Andrew, or Andrew Fuller. You can see their pictures up on the screen. I think we have the, the good old, the man on the, on the left is William Carey. The man on the right is Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller um, was different from William Carey in the sense that Fuller actually didn't go out to the mission field. He stayed home to be a missions advocate. Andrew Fuller eventually became uh, the president of the Baptist Mission Society. He traveled around raising awareness, asking churches to give and contribute, and calling churches to pray for the missionaries who went to the mission field. Before, um, before Andrew uh, Murray, before Andrew Fuller and William Carey, you know, kind of ended up 
working together to send Carrie to China, they had a conversation, and in that conversation, here's what Carrie said to Fuller before he left. I want you to listen closely to this. Carrie said this, I will go down into the pit if you will stay and hold the ropes. I will go down into the pit if you will stay and hold the ropes. Guys, missionaries who go down and down into the pit of the mission field, so to speak, they need mission-minded churches to hold the ropes, okay? And, and one of the ways that mission-minded churches can hold the ropes is by praying for missionaries. So this is part five of our study through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And the major call throughout the book of 2 Thessalonians has been for, for believers to stand unshaken until Christ returns, um, the problem is that believers like us and believers like those in Thessalonica at the time Paul wrote the letter, uh, we can become shaky. Uh, the Thessalonian believers were getting shaky in their faith in a couple of ways. Number one, they were getting shaky because there was persecution. And number two, they were getting shaky because they had a lot of fear going on. So Paul writes to them and he addresses persecution, he addresses fear. Chapter one of 2 Thessalonians, Paul is addressing the persecution that has come to the Thessalonian believers and he says to them, hey, don't worry, God is not just gonna let this happen to you. God is gonna take vengeance on your enemies. He's not gonna forget about the persecution you, you've endured. But then he also, he knows that these believers are worried that Christ has already returned and that they've missed the rapture and that they're left behind. And chapter two was all about Paul reminding them they hadn't missed the rapture. There were certain things that had to happen before Christ returned and we were still waiting for those. So he's writing to reassure them. But as we get into chapter three today, we're going into a new portion of this letter. There's a little bit of a change of tone, a change of subject matter. What we're gonna get into today is we're gonna see that the Apostle Paul actually gives a very specific challenge and even a, a rebuke to the church in Thessalonica. And as we're gonna see next week in the later portion of chapter three, he's basically gonna rebuke the idol, people who are getting lazy and irresponsible in the way that they were living. We're gonna get really um, into that uh, in a deeper level next week. But today's text kind of sets all that up. But today's text is more of a transitional text in today's text, Paul is saying, I'm calling you to be active, but I'm calling you to be active in a particular way. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll just start in verse 1 and we'll work our way down through verse 5. Paul says this, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. All right, so Paul is speaking to these Thessalonian believers and he's calling them to the action of prayer. And right, he wants them to be active in prayer. He, he says, brothers, pray for us, right? Who's the us? It's Paul and his missionary workers who were out traveling with the gospel. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. What's the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord is the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners like you and me, like the people in Thessalonica, like the people back then who were in the surrounding regions and the people all across our world today. They need to hear the message, the word of the Lord, that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners from their sin. So Paul specifically says, I want you to pray that God would use us to spread the word of the Lord. In other words, he wanted the Thessalonican church to be a mission-minded, prayer-practicing church. Mission-minded, prayer-practicing church. That's the big idea from our sermon text today. A mission-minded church will be a prayer-practicing church church. We're going to get deeper into that today. Um, the way we're going to work through our service together today is that I want to show you four ways to pray as a mission-minded church. That's what we want to 
see God turn us into. We want to grow in our fervency and uh, our, our practice uh, of prayer for missions. And so we're going to dive deeper into that today. We're going to see four ways to pray as a mission-minded church. We're going to draw some very specific application for us at the end. And then we're actually going to spend time in this service today doing it. We're going to pray for our missionaries that we as a church partner with and support, and we're going to spend time doing that at the end of the service today, and I hope that you leave here with your heart more inclined to God's heart, God's heart being a heart for his own glory to be known among the nations of the world. So let's walk through this and uh, see what the Lord does. The first of four ways to pray as a mission-minded church is this. We pray for the advance of the gospel message. We are to pray for the advance of the gospel message. Paul, again, in verse one, says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. I love that the apostle Paul says that we're gonna pray that the gospel speeds ahead, right? Paul wants the gospel to go forward, to advance, to new people, to do so quickly and unhindered. Um, it's like Paul is, is in his mind using the language of somebody sprinting, running a race, so later this month, what do we have coming up? The Olympic Games, right? And uh, it's interesting. We're in 2021, but we're actually going to do the 2020 Olympic Games this year. Pay attention to the way they brand that this year. It's going to be weird. But anyway, so we're going to see Tokyo. And what do, we, what do we love to watch in the games? We love to see these incredible athletes from all around the world. One of the, the favorite events that everybody looks for is the 100-meter dash. We want to know who is the fastest man uh, in the world, right? I don't know. I don't know about you, but I remember like a couple years ago when Usain Bolt broke the world record. What was his 100-meter dash time? Like 9.59 you know, uh, seconds to complete the 100-meter dash, all while actually turning around and looking behind him to see if anybody else was even close. That guy can run, right? He's full speed ahead, nothing hindering him. And that's the idea here when Paul is praying that the gospel will speed ahead, moving forward quickly, unhindered. Um, Paul likely had this idea in mind because when he wrote this letter, the Greek games, the ancient Greek games were, uh, were a thing and then they had running races like ours. And so gospel, Paul wants the gospel to move ahead quickly and unhindered, but he also wants them to pray that the gospel will be honored. In other words, he doesn't just want the gospel to get preached, he wants it to be received. He, he doesn't just want people to hear it, but believe it. He, just like the Thessalonian believers had heard it and received it, Paul wants the same thing. Because we need to remember, the gospel was originally preached in Jerusalem by Jesus and the apostles. It had started to spread out to the surrounding areas. The gospel had come to the Thessalonian believers. They received it. And once Paul you know, was leaving, once, once he got ran out of uh, Thessalonica by the angry mob, he continued to preach it elsewhere. And, and he wants people to receive it like the Thessalonians had. That's why he says, may it be honored as happened among you. Have you guys, you know, I like to emphasize this from time to time in my preaching. Think about how the gospel has spread and been honored throughout history. The gospel was preached in Jerusalem by Jesus and the apostles. Thessalonica was one of the first cities in the continent of Europe to receive the gospel. From there, it spread to basically the rest of the, the western portion of Europe. By 700 AD, almost every part of Western Europe had heard the gospel. By the time we get to the 1500s AD, Christians from Europe had made their way to the Americas. 
By the 1700s, Christians were evangelizing in the area that was then known as the Northwest Territory, which included our place, the, the, the area that would become known as the state of Ohio. By the 1790s, Methodist evangelists were basically going up and down the Miami River in Ohio, preaching to whatever villages would listen to the gospel. One of those villages eventually became known as the city of Dayton. In 1800, the year 1800, the first church in the city of Dayton was organized and it was started. They set aside lots, they built a log meeting house, it eventually became a Presbyterian church led by uh, Reverend William Robinson. And from there, churches started to spread all through this region, including coming here to the area of Beaver Creek, you know, until 1967 when Estel Johnson and many people met in their home and had the first meeting of what would eventually become known as University Baptist Chapel and then subsequently changed to University Baptist Church. Guys, this is how the gospel has been advancing regionally, you know, continentally and then regionally. And that's what Paul wants. But the gospel can't advance regionally unless it advances personally. People need to accept the gospel and believe it and then share it with other people. So what I want you today to do with me today is just take a moment and just reflect. Like, where were you when you received the gospel personally? Right? Somebody preached. Somebody shared the message. Somehow you heard it. But where were you when you received the gospel personally? Where were you when... The message of Jesus became more than just some children's story or became more than just some historical fact. Where were you when it touched your heart? And you received it in the manner that Paul wrote about in, First Thess- in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. You received it for what it really is, the word of the Lord. Right? What we're doing here right now, this isn't the word of Jason. We're talking about the gospel, the word of the Lord. This is his message for you. When I talk to people about Jesus, when I preach the gospel here, this isn't some man-made sales pitch trying to convince you to give Jesus a try. This is the word of the Lord, right? We, I feel like we sometimes forget the power of the gospel. We're talking about the king of the universe who ended up caring for mankind like us, so much so that he sent his one and only son to die in our place, bearing the wrath of God against our sin on the cross. So that we as rebellious sinners against him, so that we might be saved and be reconciled to him. This is an opportunity for the world to come to know the king of the universe and bow their knee before him. That's the word of the Lord. It's not just kind of a man-made sales pitch. I hope you come along and trust Jesus. So when, where, where were you? What was going on when you received the word of the Lord for what it really is? For me, I was nine years old sitting at a church camp, listening to a man preach. And I remember sitting like you guys are right now, sitting here, and I remember thinking, man, I want that pastor to hurry up and get done because I know at the end of the service there's gonna be an altar call, and I know I wanna be saved. And that serve, I was waiting for him, like, come on, man, speed it up, right? I wanted, to be, I wanted to be saved that day. And that's when the gospel came to me personally. That's when the Lord opened my heart to honor the gospel, and Paul is wanting the Thessalonians to pray that the word of God would, be, would go out and be honored among others the way it was honored among the Thessalonians. He wants them to pray for the advance of the gospel message. And if we're gonna be a mission-minded church, we should pray the same way. 
That's the first way to pray as a mission-minded church. Here's the second way to pray as a mission-minded church. We pray for the protection of the gospel messenger. So we don't just pray for the advance of the gospel message, but also for the protection of the gospel messenger. Paul is, has asked them to pray that the gospel would speed ahead, and then he says this, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Right, so apparently, there were some people coming against Paul. They were opposed to the gospel. Paul doesn't just say, uh, you know, these guys are just little misguided. They've got good hearts, but they're, they're a little misguided. Paul says, no, these are wicked and evil men. They want to oppose the gospel. Right? He, he knows that wherever he goes, there's going to be opposition. We've seen that in, as we've studied the life of the Apostle Paul. Ran out of cities, beaten by the crowds, opposed by many, hit with whips and stones. Right? People were opposed to the gospel. Why is that? It's because the enemy works with evil and wicked men to oppose the truth of the gospel. If I could say it very simply, wherever there are gospel proponents, there will be gospel opponents. Wherever there are gospel proponents, there will be gospel opponents. It's not just in Paul's day, right? The same thing is still going on in our world today. As we've said over and over, in America, yes, the hostility against Christians is rising, but we still, none of us, to my knowledge, have ever suffered to the point of shedding blood. We've never, to my knowledge, none of us have ever been imprisoned for our Christian faith. But around the world, this is going on everywhere. Let me give you some recent examples. On June 11th of this year, Pastor Francis Oboe was murdered in Nairobi, Kenya by Muslim extremists who were upset that people in their country were converting to Christianity. On June 22nd, Zafar Badi, a Christian man in Pakistan, was sentenced to life in prison for simply sending text messages that reflected Christian beliefs. This past Monday, July 5th, 125 students from a Baptist school in Nigeria were targeted and kidnapped by terrorists. Wherever there are gospel proponents, there will be gospel opponents. There will be wicked and evil men coming against those who want to share the gospel. So what must we do? We must pray. We should pray not just for the advance of the gospel message, but for the protection of gospel messengers. That's the second way to pray. Here's the third way we must pray as a mission-minded church. We must pray with trust in the faithfulness of God. We must pray with trust in the faithfulness of God. Paul says in verse three, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Right, so Paul is proclaiming the faithfulness of God. And He's comparing this, really contrasting this with the unfaithfulness of these wicked and evil men. He's saying these wicked and evil men, they're gonna come against the proponents of the gospel. They're gonna come against us as we travel as missionaries around the world. They're gonna come against you, Thessalonians, as you stand firm and preach the gospel. But the Lord is gonna be faithful to you. Paul says that God will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. One of my favorite old Christian hymns is the old song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. What a good old song. It was written by a man named Thomas Chisholm many years ago. You know how um, you read these old hymns and their words are so powerful, a lot of times you want to study the story behind the song? I remember years ago wanting to study the story behind Great is Thy Faithfulness. Surely something crazy had to happen for somebody to write such a powerful song about the faithfulness of God. Here's what I found out. Nothing dramatic happened to Thomas Chisholm. He's just a regular guy. 
committed to reading the Bible. And in his own Bible reading, he came across Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, which says, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So here we have this guy, Thomas Chisholm, just reading Lamentations and writing a song about God's faithfulness in the midst of regular everyday life. But here's what we need to remember. Who wrote Lamentations? A man, a prophet named Jeremiah. And prophet Jeremiah, man, he was in awful circumstances. He was a, a, a voice, a prophetic voice, preaching the God, the God's message to the people of Israel and Judah. They rejected him as a messenger of God. So what happened? God, because of their hard-heartedness, God allowed the people of Israel to be what? Conquered by Babylon. Right? They were taken over by, they were oppressed, they were enslaved. Yet in the middle of, of these terrible circumstances, Jeremiah knew that God was going to be faithful to preserve his people, the people of Israel. So Jeremiah wrote, great is thy faithfulness, new every morning. So here's my point. Whether you're in the season of regular, ordinary life, or whether you're in a season of intense spiritual warfare, we all can agree on this. God is absolutely faithful. He's faithful. 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. We know this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. How does the faithfulness of God apply to missions? We're talking about missions today. How does the faithfulness of God to keep his promises apply to missions? I was at a conference years ago where a pastor named David Platt preached a, a message that really locked this in for me. And he said, look, as Christians, we should have rock-solid confidence in our missions efforts not because of how good we are at missions, but because of how good God is at keeping his promises. Because what do we read in the, New, in the New Testament? In the end, who will be seated around the throne worshiping the lamb? People from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Now, either God's telling the truth about that or he's lying. But if we believe that God is telling the truth about that, then what do we know? When we go and preach the gospel to one of the 4,000 unreached people groups in our world, here's what we know. Eventually, somebody there is going to believe, right? Somebody from that tribe is going to believe. And so it's that confidence in God's faithfulness to keep his promises that drives us to have confidence, right? Confidence in God as we pursue missions with our lives. Knowing the faithfulness of God is essential to living a mission-oriented life. Because if you don't believe that God is faithful to keep his promises, then what's going to happen? You're going to quit when it seems like he's not being faithful. Many of us are, are afraid, I think, to take radical steps of faith, to live lives of service to God, to take steps to go on mission trips, to consider serious involvement in missions. I think a lot of times we're nervous about it because we feel like, oh, you know, I'm, well, you know, I'm just kind of a weak Christian. My faith isn't where it needs to be. We're afraid that we're kind of just a little too weak in our walk with God. But here's the truth, and I want you to hear this today. A mission-oriented life is not built on confidence in our faithfulness to God. 
It is built on confidence in God's faithfulness to his own promises. You with me on this? Um, Hudson Taylor, an English missionary to China in the 1800s, he said this, all God's giants have been weak men and women who have gotten hold of God's faithfulness. Mission's effectiveness is not built on the strength of our faithfulness to God. It's built on the strength of God's faithfulness to his own word. When we're convinced of that, we'll be a mission-minded church that prays with the trust in God's faithfulness. Here's the last way we must pray if we wanna be a mission-minded church. We, just, we pray not just with a trust in the faithfulness of God, but also with a focus on the love of God. Not just on the faithfulness of God, but with a focus on the love of God. Paul says this in verse four of our text. He says, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command, right? So Paul is saying, all right, um, Thessalonians, we're, we're confident in you. You've been a commendable church. We, we've talked about this in our previous studies. They were a commendable church, walking with the Lord, faithfully serving him. Paul says, we're, we're confident that you're gonna continue to do the things that we've taught you. It's interesting to me that Paul says, we're confident in the Lord about you. In other words, Paul's confidence in them, it didn't, it didn't even so much rest with them as much as it, did, it rested with God in them. I heard a man say this many years ago. It, it always stuck with me. He said, confidence in Christ breeds confidence in the brethren. Confidence in Christ breeds confidence in the brethren. When I'm confident that you're saved and the Holy Spirit is at work in you and God is moving in your life, then that makes me think highly of you, trust in you, to, to know that you're gonna walk faithfully with the Lord even when things are difficult. Not because you're great, but because God is great in you. And that's what Paul's saying here. And then he says this in verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So what do we have here in verse five? Here you have Paul not asking them to pray for him, but rather we see him praying for them now. This is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, that the Lord would direct their hearts to his love and to Christ's steadfastness. That God would direct their hearts. Our hearts are so prone to be distracted, right? They need, some, they need to be directed sometimes. We get distracted with the things of the world. We get distracted with the other affairs of life. You wanna be a mission-minded person? God is saying, Paul is saying, God needs to direct our hearts to him. That's what a director does. Points us in the way we should go. Points us to where we need to be. And Paul wants the Thessalonian church, he wants their hearts directed to God's love and to the steadfastness of Christ. Guys, if you're saved, you know this. There's no greater expression than God's love than that which we see in the person of Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God is manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world. Romans 5, 8, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The best display of God's love is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. So how does that apply to us? Listen to me for a minute. If you ever wonder if God really loves you, direct your attention to the cross. If you ever wonder if God really loves you, direct your attention to the cross. 
There have been times in my life where the cross touched my heart in special ways, unique ways, ways that I needed in that moment. I remember a very vivid moment in my life where the love of God became overwhelming to me. It's, it's when the thought really sunk deep in my heart that when Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for me, he did so knowing that almost 2,000 years later, Jason Wing would say, I love you, Lord, and yet at the same time go live for myself and my sin. He died for me, knowing that I would be the one who said I loved him, but lived like the world. Like I would be one of those guys that was just, had moments of total hypocrisy in my faith and questioning the truth about his, his reality and the love that, that he has for people. And yet Jesus still went to the cross for me. Listen, the reason why that touched me so deeply, I think, is because uh, it would be very unlikely for me to commit to a love relationship with somebody who I knew would eventually betray me, lie to me, be a traitor to me, you know, uh, backstab me, whatever it is. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did for us. It touched my heart to read stories like the classic story of the, the prodigal son where the son goes and lives his wayward life and then the scripture says comes to his senses and he decides to come home. And what does the father do when the wayward son comes home? The father stands up and runs to meet him. And that picture of God running, initiating, coming to me when I was, you know, when I was just living like the world, pathetic, sinful, that, that picture of God running because of his love for me, it touched my heart. I'm bringing that up to you to say, you know what, we need God, we need God to keep our hearts directed on his love for us seen in Jesus Christ. We need God to keep our hearts on track. We need God to make our hearts focused on God. And his great love for us, his great love for me, his great love for you, and we need to remember that God has great love for the nations. God has great love for the nations. If we want our church to be a mission-minded church, we must pray with our hearts focused on the love of God. So what's the big idea from the sermon today? A mission-minded church will be a prayer-practicing church. We'll be praying for the advance of the message, for the protection of the messenger. We'll be praying for trust in God's faithfulness and for our focus to be on God's love. In just a moment, guys, we're gonna have a word of prayer and we're gonna pray over our missions efforts as a church. But I wanna just, now that we're meeting back in this building, I wanna just take a moment and just tell you, you're gonna start to see intentional, purposeful, efforts, more active um, promotion, more active calls for us as a church to engage in prayer. I want you to know that that's coming, okay? Um, We need to grow as a church. God has been growing us as a church of prayer, and I'm so thankful for that. But we wanna keep him doing it. We wanna see God continue to do it more and more. And here's why. It's because I am reminded deeply in my soul, like I can preach my heart out. I can be all fiery and yell and sweat. You guys, we can serve the Lord faithfully, you know, as hard as we can, making much effort. But if God doesn't stir in someone's heart, no lives are changed. God's got to do it. Only God can save a soul. Only God can change a heart. Only God can bring a sinner to repentance. Only God can keep someone faithful to the end. So because only God can do it, we have to recognize we can't do it. And when we recognize that, what will we do? We will be a people of prayer. We will pray.
We'll be a people of prayer. Our church is like a sailboat. We point to the shore, we set the sails, but then we pray for the wind. Because unless the wind blows, we're just stuck. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna recognize only God can send the wind. We're gonna pray. We want, we want the Lord to give our leaders vision for where the church needs to go. We want the members of our church to be committed to the structure, to setting the sails, to creating the systems that work. But guys, only God can send the wind. And so we wanna pray that he sends the wind, the power of his Holy Spirit. Before we pray, I wanna give you some very personal takeaways to think through. Poor for personal points of application. Here's the first one. You need to know this. No matter how unlovely you feel, know this. God loves you. You may be here today and you may feel unlovable. You may hate your past, the mistakes you've made, the decisions, the choices, the the actions that you've taken. But God has never loved anyone because they're so lovely. He loves us because he's loving. It's in his nature to love and he loves you. No matter how messed up your life is, some of you may have never received the love of Christ and been saved. Today you need to repent of your sin, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection and he, and he died on the cross because he loves you and he wants your sins to be forgiven and your sins can be forgiven by trusting him in faith. Some of you need to remember the love of God because you have trusted in Christ but you've lived in a season of rebellion and you feel ashamed. Come home. God loves you, no matter how unlovely you may feel. Second takeaway, if you're sensing a call to missions or ministry, it's time to trust God and get going. If you're sensing a call to missions or ministry, it's time to trust God and get going. Part of what I'm committing to pray for for our church for the next season of life is that God will call ministers and missionaries out of UBC. That God will call people to the ministry and call people to, be, to go to the foreign mission field. And so you're going to see that we're going to become a church that over the years, we're going to call out the called, right? People who are called by God to go, we want to be a church that sends out missionaries and pastors. And so maybe you have a sense of stirring in your heart. If that's you, don't push it off. Don't ignore it. Maybe God's calling you to go on a short-term trip or to be a long-term missionary. Maybe God is calling you to serve in this church or to start at taking an active step of engaging your neighbors or in some way getting involved in missions. I wanna encourage you today, whatever it is, whatever's been holding you back, let go of the fears and trust in God's faithfulness. God will supply everything you need. Trust him and get going. When we get going with the gospel, when we become a mission-minded church, here's the third takeaway for us. We should expect opposition. We can expect opposition. Guys, Jesus said, uh, if the world hated me, they're surely gonna hate you. See, and the, the problem is, is that we just don't wanna be hated. You know, we, as Christians, we're so nervous of people not liking us, so we try to make the gospel cool. We try to be a cool church and make, become very likable and all this type of thing. And I just, I just wanna remind us, if, if, we just, if we're in this mindset where we just think, man, if Christians were just more loving than the world would stop hating us. Okay, that is true probably to a very small extent. Some people who love Jesus will start to love the church. But here's the thing. Nobody was more loving than Jesus. Nobody served people better than Jesus. And people hated him. 
and still wanted to kill him. So what does that mean? We as Christians, when we choose to live like Jesus and get on mission, we should expect that there will be hostility and opposition. And here's the last takeaway for us today. Take a step toward intentional prayer for missions. Take a step towards intentional prayer for missions. I told my wife last night when we were going to bed, I feel convicted about this one. There were years in our family life in the past where we were diligent about teaching our kids about missionaries, praying for our missionary friends, making it a, a very practical thing you know, for us. And I feel like I've let that slip for a while. And so the Lord is, connect, is burdening me to reconnect with that. What's the step you can take? In you, in your homes, in your household, in your time, personal devotions or prayer as a family? What's one step that you can take to be intentional about praying for missions? The Lord will lead you to that step. Whatever it is, Take that step. Let's hold the ropes together and pray for missionaries. We're gonna end today specifically praying over the missionaries that UBC has partnered with. I wanna invite Connor Tate to come up and uh, lead us through this time. And um, I'm excited to do this. We have, how many people are we praying over today, Connor? 11 different households. 11 different households or individuals or family units that we're gonna be praying over. Um, And these are, you know, Many of you are connected to other missionaries, but these are the missionaries that UBC has officially partnered with. We wanted to introduce them to you with pictures on the screen and such, a little bit about their mission info, and then Connor's gonna lead us in a time of corporate prayer as a church, and after we pray together, um, Caleb and the worship team will lead us in a closing song.